Welcome to the Best Ever You Show with your host, Elizabeth Hamilton Garino, CEO and founder of the Best Ever You Network, helping you live your life to the fullest. How? Real people, including celebrities, real advice, real places, products, and businesses, real life stories. It's all right here for you with this radio show, printed magazine, websites, community, and more. Remember to visit us online, too, at besteveryou.com. And now here's your host, CEO and founder of the Best Ever You Network, Elizabeth Hamilton Garino. Hello, everybody, and thank you so much for listening to the Best Ever You show. I'm glad you're here with us. We have a wonderful guest with us today. Um, I know you guys know me as Baseball Mama, uh, but we're going all soccer mode on you today with uh, Dr. Joe Magnick with us. Um, who I've, I've written he's an American soccer, le- American soccer legend, and I think he, a lot of people have written that before. So we're going to bring him on in just a minute, but I, um, I just wanted to say thank you so much to everybody for your support and your kindness with Best Ever You and this radio show. Um, as you know, we are completely grassroots, um, a little bit husband-funded, not going to lie. And um, so when you share our show, share my show, and embrace the guests that we bring on, like you do in Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn and all those things, it is very, very meaningful. Um, when we bring guests on here, they have information to, to give to you to help you be your best. And for example, while this show may be, be about soccer, you might be listening and learn something about goal setting today. Um, or gosh, who knows what you might learn. You know, the, the world of student athletes and sports um, is, is so fascinating um, to me and other people. And I love it when we bring guests on like this. So how are, do you like to be called Dr. Joe, Dr. Macknick, Dr. Joe? <laughs> how are you today? Well, I'm fantastic. Thank you, Elizabeth. And and, and my friends do call me Dr. Joe, and that's a, a yeah. name that has become, yeah. I guess, a little bit fun, uh, especially they're using it, you know, on the Fox Sports Network when I talk about soccer. So they say there's a doctor in the house or Dr. Joe is here. <laughs> and so Dr. Yeah. Dr. Joe is fine. Thank you. Okay, everybody. So Dr. Joe is in the house. <laughs> All right, awesome. I love yeah. it. Um, boy, our, our, I'm so glad you're here. Thank you so much for taking the time and energy to be with us today because this is this is really an honor. Um, I I was wondering if you would just start out and uh, you just got elected to the U.S. Uh, Soccer Hall of Fame. Is that right? Did I get that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, and, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, I guess it's the uh, pinnacle of my career uh, of 60 years in soccer and the hall of fame is uh, got a new building, the soccer hall of fame. They're opening it this October in Dallas uh, in actually Frisco, Texas, where the soccer stadium is. And it's going to be in one end zone of the soccer stadium. And, and it hasn't had a home uh, for 10 or 12 years. So uh, I'm going to be part of that uh, grand opening and, and but uh, by induction actually took place um, in uh, February this uh, past February in Orlando, and it was uh, a big thrill for me and for my family and guests. Yeah, I, I noticed it online. Um, the University of New Haven tweeted it out, and it caught my eye. And uh, I've just I've I'm just so proud. I mean, I just think that's just amazing. And um, to have the history you have with New Haven, too, it just makes me smile from ear to ear. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, I, I took my kids when they were little on a, on a Hall of Fame tour. 
And we started here in Maine and we went to the soccer hall of fame, but it, it was in, um, it was in New York and it had a big yeah, soccer ball. Only on, out of- only on to New York. And it, uh, it, it stayed there for about, uh, you know, 10 or 15 years, but it ran into financial difficulty and maybe it was, you know, not open all winter long or the weather was too cold or soccer mm-hmm. at the time wasn't as popular as baseball because it really was near Cooperstown, uh, not, yeah. not so far from the Baseball Hall of Fame. But it, um, it, it went out of business, so to speak, and all of the materials were uh, put into storage. And now the Hunt family, Lamar Hunt, uh, who's passed away but was a great supporter of soccer, uh, he owns, uh, his family owns the Dallas team in Major League Soccer, and they're bringing the Hall of Fame, as I said, uh, to the Dallas area, which will open up in October. I'll have to send you this picture. It's all my, my kids' little pipsqueaks sitting underneath that giant soccer ball coming out of the outside of the building. Do you remember? Uh-huh. That was so cool. Are they doing that again? Something like that well, with I, the design? I, that was neat. I, I think it's going to be very uh, um Modern in terms of uh, you know technical stuff. You can you can uh, press a button and put yourself in a game. Uh, cool. You know, play any position. It's going to be a lot of video and, and a, a lot of uh, interviews. I'm not so sure it's going to be like a museum, so to speak, but but more of a interactive uh, opportunity for all the visitors to really feel part of the history of the game. That's so neat. Uh, that, yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun, actually. We had a lot of fun at the other one in New York, so I can't imagine that updated would be a blast. Um, and and I don't really have soccer players. <laughs> They're all baseball players, so <laughs> that's pretty funny. Um, talk, can you tell me, have, so have you always loved soccer? Like, did you know, what, like, when you were two that you, you know, did somebody say, oh, he's a great soccer player? How, how does that go for you? Tell me the history of how you got to be where you are right now. I grew up in New York City um, in the Greenpoint section of Brooklyn, and there was a park, um, you know, pretty large city park called McCarran's Park, and they had a field uh, that, you you know, that you could play football or soccer. It was dirt, um, and every Sunday there, there would be a game there. Um, but I really grew up as a hockey fan. Uh, I lived only um, – six or seven stops from the old Madison square garden on the subway. So I was able to go and back then you could go with a high school ID card. They called it a geo card. You could get into a ranger game for 40 cents. Uh, So I went, I was a big, big hockey fan. And um, you know, and then there's a similarity between soccer and hockey. So while I was waiting for the Sunday night hockey games to start, I would go to McCarran's park and watch the soccer games and uh, really, you know, got to like the sport. And then when I was in high school, I sat down in an English class, and I started to talk to the kids sitting next to me about about hockey. And uh, be, and he was of Ukrainian ancestry. And at that time, the Boston Bruins had a, a line of Vic Stasiuk and the Johnny Busick and Bronco Horvat that they called the Yuki line. So we started to talk about that and hockey, and he said something to me like, did you ever play soccer? And I said, no, but I like it very much. And he said, well, we need a goalie. You could be the goalie because you really don't need to know how to kick the ball or anything. You just save it with your hand. And because I you know, knew angle play from watching the goalies in hockey, uh, he took me up to the gymnasium, and I had a tryout. 
And um, the, the, in my junior year, I was on the JV. My senior year, I made the varsity. And then uh, I got a half scholarship to Long Island University when they uh, were starting to build their soccer program uh, in the early 60s. Can I go? Can I take you back for a second to the word JV? Can you tell JV me? Junior and, the, and like junior varsity, can you tell the listeners yeah. how important it is to work your way up to something? Well, especially when, you know, Brooklyn Tech had um, a very good varsity team, so I couldn't, as a novice player, crack that lineup. Uh, but, you know, the fact that we were able to watch them play, uh, you know, and, and they they set the standard. They actually won the city championship uh, in uh, 1959. So, so um, having the ability to watch them play and, you know, you wanted to – hopefully make the varsity the next year when some of those players graduated. So I set that goal for myself and, and that's, uh, you know, I worked very hard at it and uh, um, I used to just keep going to games and, and I would watch games and I would watch them from behind the goal. So I was uh, able to learn from the mistakes of others. And I would, I would watch goals being scored and say, what did the goalie do to give up that goal or what did he do to make that save? And then I would put that in my head and make sure that if the same or similar opportunity came to me, I, w- I wouldn't I would wouldn't make the same mistake the goalkeeper made, or or I would do the thing he did uh, to make that save. So uh, that's that's how I learned uh, how to play goalkeeper, and I used the same concept uh, watching referees uh, because I later became uh, a referee in soccer after my playing days were over and. You just watch, you know, so many games on live and then some on television. Back then there weren't too many on television, but there are now. And you can learn uh, a lot about refereeing, watching watching the uh, mistakes and the good moves that uh, people do and then just adding them to your repertoire. And, uh, that's, and that's how it all took place for me. That's awesome. Yeah, that's there's a lot of wisdom right there. There's uh, there's so much to be said for watching other people and their successes and even the mistakes they made, like you said. Um, I just yeah, that's that's super valuable. Do you um do you did you have a like a I know I'm random all over the place here, but did you have a, a coach that was pivotal in your life or anything like that, or a lot of them? Or I think I think everyone has. Uh... VIPs in their life. And, and I, um, you know, I had, I guess, three uh, real mentors. Uh, my first was the, the college coach who, um, you know, taught, I was a physical education major back then, and he was a teacher in the city school system. And, and uh, he embraced me and we became good friends. He actually was the best man at my wedding. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, brought me to, uh, in the summer to work at uh, summer soccer camps, which I had growing up in New York City, no idea even existed. Um, so I learned a whole new lifestyle. And, uh, you know, he was very driven and very motivated. And so he was, he was my first mentor. And then um, he was, as I said, he was my college coach. And, and then I became, after graduation, his assistant coach as a graduate assistant. And then Long Island University got a new president and, he, the, the president recognized uh, this gentleman's ability. His name was Gary Rosenthal and asked him if he would become dean of students. 
uh, because he worked, you know, he's so good working with the members of the team and obviously all the other students, physical education majors and whatever. So he left the soccer coaching um, to become dean of students. And then I, uh, as the assistant coach, kind of inherited a really, really good team. And that led to uh, my early six coaching success. Hmm. How, um, okay, so we have we have New Haven in common a little bit because we've got a son who um, plays baseball there right now. Um, how'd you, how'd you get to New Haven? Because that, that had to be a little bit of a different campus in 1969 than it is in 2018. Well, when I went to New Haven in 1969, it was actually called New Haven College. And, and you've been there because your son plays baseball and, and you know, the gymnasium, that gymnasium wasn't even built yet. And they didn't (laughs) have, they, they didn't have the so-called North campus. Uh, they owned the property, but it was, you know, it was a, just a field, an open area and some woods and stuff like that. So we actually, the first year, we played our games in uh, in a park in the center of New Haven or a little place called Quigley Stadium where we played mostly on the road. Um, but I came to New Haven because, um, as I told you, I grew up in Brooklyn, but I had distant relatives in Connecticut that my father used to take me there in the summer. So I always wanted to raise my family in Connecticut. So after three years of uh, coaching at Long Island University and, and, and uh, we lived on the 16th floor of a high rise um, and, uh, you know, it wasn't really the best uh, atmosphere to raise a family. I was began to apply for jobs in Connecticut. And uh, uh, I met a gentleman at the soccer coaches convention and, uh, and uh, he he was he was actually the coach at New Haven, but he was going to become the head of the physical education department because of the new gymnasium that was opening. So he was giving up coaching, and he invited me up for an interview, and and I got the job as soccer coach and hockey coach, because back then in 1969 you couldn't get a full time job as a soccer coach. Soccer wasn't you know the sport that it is today, and had the following or whatever. You had to do you know, other things be the PR director or intramural director or, or, or coach two sports. So the fact that I knew a little bit about hockey, um, I was able to take the job as a hockey coach. And, and I did that for three years before um, we were able to hire a, a coach with uh, uh, more pedigree. I love that school. Just so you know, I, I, I it is so cool. My son, stepped foot in that campus and he was like, this is it. <laughs> it was so fun. And um, it, it's just it's, got uh, a... It's a lot different. Obviously it's a, not, a lot different now. Uh, and I have been there uh, numerous times and recently yeah. and it's, you know, it's beautiful now. And uh, the oh. fact that the, the field is almost on the main campus. Uh, so kids can like even the watch main? the game out of their dorm window. Uh, yeah. it's, it's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. It, it has a life and an energy that's undescri- – I can't describe it still. It, it, there's just a vibe you get when you're there, and um, you, you have to go there to understand, I guess. But it, 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 we visited, and there wasn't really anybody on campus, and there was still so much energy. <laughs> it was funny. It's, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's got spunk, that school, um, definitely. You did um, – you were the assistant professor in the school of business too, right? In the sport management. Yeah, that, that, that was, uh, 
That was fun. You know, I was, I, I said I had a relationship with New Haven for over 30 years, but it was like in different stints because I left yeah. twice to, to, to go into professional soccer and then with the national team. And then I came back because the athletic director, Debbie Chin, wanted to start women's soccer. And she asked if I would be the coach of the initial women's soccer team. And then after five or six years, I left again to join Major League Soccer. But um, Alan Sack, who's a, one, a legendary professor there, uh, started the sport management department in the School of Business. Uh, and he asked me, uh, because of my involvement in the professional game, but I also had a pretty successful soccer business, number one soccer camps, which we started way back in 1977. And, and it was like one of the first national soccer camps. So I had some business acumen as well. And uh, so I was hired in the School of Business as a assistant professor and taught in the, both the undergraduate and graduate uh, programs and helped uh, with Alan build the sport management program into a uh, very successful uh, program at the university. What is it that you love about soccer so much? <laughs> wow. You know, I, I, I haven't really thought about that, but it's, you know, what, what I love about it is the, um, the ability for almost anyone to play it in the beginning. Um, you know, it's not a question of you have to be of a certain size or certain body shape or build uh, and you know and but the most important thing is that uh, there's 11 players on the field for each team and every one of them is a quarterback um, it's kind of like you know basketball where everybody touches the ball but it's only five but soccer is really basketball with 11 because every everyone touches the ball although not with their hands and is constantly making decisions um, and and there's a lot of reading the game and spontaneity uh, that, that you, you know, you have to think about what you're going to do with the ball before you get the ball and looking ahead as far as that, that's called vision. Uh, it's just the demands of the game, both the physical, the technical, um, the psychological, even the mental toughness needed to play. The fact that both men and women, boys and girls can play it and have so much fun with it. Um, that's, I guess, what I love the most. Awesome. You said earlier that there was a similarity between it and hockey. Um, what is that? What What do you mean by that? Well, there's similarities. I mean, there's a goal at each end of the field. Uh, the game back then was officiated with one referee, just like soccer, with you know two assistant referees. Uh, there's uh, um, patterns of play. There's the concept of offside. Um, there's just so many yeah. things where hockey is. You know, hockey is similar to soccer or vice versa, that uh, you can make a lot of correlations. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, Yeah, I get what you're saying. Exactly. Um, did you, um, you know how people, when they're in a sport and they love the sport and they, you know, get so fortunate to go from high school to college and if it stops at college, maybe it keeps going, who knows, you know, all that good stuff. But there, there seems to be a point sometimes where people go, oh, I can't play this anymore. Um, can you describe that feeling and how you've always kept, you've always stayed with soccer. So it's a perfect example of, you know, like loving a sport and still sort of being able to always be involved in it, whether you're actually playing it or not. It might be really inspiring well, yeah, for people who are, yeah. oh, sorry. I understand. 
you know, there actually are soccer leagues for um, over 60 years old, over 50 years old. Uh-huh. Uh, so, uh-huh. you know, pe- people can continue to play, and, and they, don't, they, they play on a smaller field and, and, you know, five against five or six against six where you don't have to do all that running. And there's, you know, they, there's even co-ed soccer at, the, at, you know, the upper age level with, with certain rules on, uh, uh, you know, the, taking out the physical element of it and just the, the enjoyment of kicking the ball and, and uh, patterns in play and, and all of that. But I had the good fortune of continuing my career uh, after playing is getting into coaching that we talked about, but then also as a referee. And, and uh, that's, you know, as I told you, I was a goalkeeper. And there were so many similarities between playing and goal and refereeing as, you know, being so uh, the person of responsibility on the field where you can't make a mistake. You can't make it as a goalkeeper. You can't make it as a referee. So the pressures were the same. And uh, in many ways, the rewards were the same when you, you, you felt that you had a good game. Uh, and and uh, so, so uh, refereeing is another way you can continue um, to stay involved. And as long as your legs hold out, uh, you could probably referee, in, you know, 55, 60 years of age. That's awesome. Have you ever had a point where you're like, okay, that's it, I'm done. <laughs> I don't want to play this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> you had, had, no. Have you had a give up moment? No, I mean, the, the running okay. The running became, you know, I was not a natural born runner. Uh, so so refereeing, it was fortunate that I that I really understood the game and and could and because of coaching got you know was able to get into the minds of the players in terms of knowing what they're attempting to do and how they react to different plays and fouls and even even the pain um so i was i was very successful as a referee um but but you know at at, at about 55 or so um just couldn't get into position to get the right angle on a play uh because positioning is very important uh, and looking at the play with the right angle is really important. And if you're not close enough and you don't have the right angle, then you're guessing. And, and you can't be guessing out there. The game is too important to the players, <laughs> yeah. regardless of the level that they're playing. Yeah. Yeah, we had a – I'm giggling a little bit because my husband played um, over 50 men's softball this past summer. <laughs> He, they called him Wheels, and he's got both hips replaced. <laughs> it was very funny because he was one of the ones who could just run to get the ball, and it was really it was it was so neat though because everybody played it. Everybody was still playing. You know what I mean? No matter mm-hmm. what age they were, they were out there playing, and it was so much fun. And they were laughing, and you know it was competitive and everything. So I I love hearing also that you can play this game also at any age because I think that's really important to people to to stay to stay active and and not only that I mean back when when I was growing up there were there was a real shortage of of fields uh for soccer I mean there were many many baseball and softball fields but as the game you know began to grow and 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 now it's the uh fourth most uh played game in America and fourth most watched game on television in yeah. America. Uh, and so along with that, pretty there are now fields in every community. Um, one business I should have been involved in, I should have been uh, owned a soccer goal business because uh, <laughs> there's, 
There, there are soccer goals all over. I mean, and now there are complexes where they have 15, 16, 20 fields, and they have these tournaments on weekends, and the uh, and every field is full. And I mean, that didn't exist uh, when I was growing up, and it was such a scarcity of fields that uh, you sometimes couldn't find a place to play. Wow, yeah, that they're everywhere now. So yeah, that's that's interesting to to hear. Um, do you talk? Let's talk about your camps because that's I'm I'm on this website. Um, for everybody here, you can go to um, number one soccercamps.com. It's N O the number one and then soccercamps.com. And um, this is this is you that you started this. This is so cool. Yeah. Yes. Um, you know, when, when the game started to become a little bit popular in America and the, there just wasn't a level of coaching uh, available in every town and community like there is now. So soccer camps became um, a, a really big um, contributor to the development of players. And um, there were no soccer camps that were designed specifically, specifically for the position of goalkeeper. And, and I would work at uh, other people's camps and I would come in like a guest coach and do the goalkeeping for two days or three days or whatever. And, and the rest of the time when I wasn't there, uh, I was hearing stories of the kids were like just being used for target practice and there weren't, no one was really teaching them anything. So I had the idea to start a camp just for goalkeepers. And the first year, uh, we held it at uh, the Taft School in uh, Watertown, Connecticut, and we had 39 goalkeepers sign up from 13 states. And, wow. And we, and, and we did, um, I guess we did a really, really good job because the next year uh, at the Loomis Chapey School, just north of Hartford, um, which was a much bigger campus, uh, we had over 200 goalkeepers coming from 39 states. And we, I mean, we had to send people to the airport to pick up campers. And uh, by year three, we had camps in, in Chicago and Texas, and then later on California, and became a national camp with over, over 20 uh, locations. And uh, my wife, Barbara, was the uh, principal administrator, ran the office. And this is before computers now, and even before cell phones. So she would be, you know, with three by five cards with registration and and uh, at, in, on the payphone all day in the in the school dormitory because we would go from we'd be one week in Texas the next week we were in California we'd have to transport equipment <laughs> it was like the circus and, and uh, <laughs> yeah. it, it, but it it really did well uh, and it, it and it's uh, at the best of times the, we actually had thirty two. Hundred goalkeepers, no field goalkeepers and pl- field players in the summer, um, and then what happened is soccer became more and more popular, um, and uh, and now the level of coaching in the different communities got better. Uh, pl- coaches went to coaching school. More players became coaches. Some of the some of my staff members, be, you know, opened up their own clubs in different towns and. Uh, so the need for a kid to go to camp to learn how to play wasn't the same as it was back in the uh, late 70s and early 80s. We still own and operate the camp, 
um, and we do, you know, 15, 1,600 uh, players a year. Um, and uh, we have a management team, uh, Greg Andrulis, who was the former coach of the Columbus crew, and his wife kind of managed it for us. And, and uh, it's kind of uh, still going strong after over 40 years. Oh yeah, I well, you know, it's interesting because camps are more popular than getting more popular again than ever because um, people people just love to to learn. Um, I I think that would be so neat to go to a camp like this and and just just learn. Um, there's got I, I can't even imagine how how neat that would be. Um, I'm I'm choppy because I'm looking at something while I'm talking and I'm looking at your website and I'm, I'm loving the blog actually. Um, so for anybody listening, there's, they have a great blog on this website. Um, and I noticed that you, um, you do things with the, I'm, pardon me if I'm saying this wrong, but do you, are you involved with the U S Paralympic team too? Well, actually one of our coaches, uh, Chad Little, who works uh, the Darlington School in uh, in Georgia? It's in Rome, Georgia, uh, outside of Atlanta. He's the goalkeeper coach for the Paralympic National Paralympic Team. So, so that's he wrote um, on the blog about his experiences yeah. uh, with that. Um, but uh, that, you know, that's that's our, the, our level of involvement with the Paralympic team. Yeah. Uh, what do you think a young player um, needs to do these days to, to be their best? Like if there's somebody out there listening to our show right now who's like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe he's on the phone and it's really him and I want to learn and I want to play pro soccer or, you know, or whatever's going on. Where where does a kid like that start with that dream? When he's he or she is three she, years yeah, old. Yeah, he or she, home. sorry. Yeah, when he or she is three years old in their home and the parent um, throws a ball out in the basement, you know, a little ball bigger than a little bigger than a tennis ball and starts kicking the ball in the basement and teaching the, you know, the kid to have the eye to feet motor skills that are really, really important. And that's where it begins to be. You develop a love for the game, a love for kicking the ball uh, that early. Um, and then there's after that, after a couple of years, there's an argument, and I think it's a good one whether a player, uh, you know, should concentrate on one sport or or play many sports. And I, I'm in, I'm in favor of uh, diversification. I think I think you can there's a benefit to playing other sports that you can bring back into soccer. I certainly know that you know back when I learned goalkeeper, we concentrated on the catching part of it. But the rules of the game have changed now where you, you have to be a complete soccer player uh, to be even a goalkeeper. Um, so because you can't, now there are rules, you can't pick up the ball played to you by a teammate or if it comes from a throw-in uh, from a teammate. And so we see real soccer players becoming goalkeepers now. And I, so I think, um, you know, you got to work. You actually have to work at it um, and uh, whether you're playing in, club system or in high school or you're we have now what's called the u.s soccer development academy where the best players in the country have been identified uh, both boys and girls and play in very high level competition in these in the development academy um but but i think a well-rounded athlete makes a better soccer player 
So uh, by the time you get to age 16, that's that's when you really need to then specialize. Do you have any thoughts on student athletes and and like involvement with grades and community service and like a complete picture of a student athlete? <laughs> well, anytime you're in high school playing, uh, you need to have uh, a certain level of grades in order to be eligible to play. Uh, and the same is true in college. Um, and so it's kind of, uh, there's, you just can't go to school and, 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 and take, you know, any old courses. Yeah. In fact, now the NCAA, um, has rules and regulations that the courses you take in high school, uh, have to, you have to have a certain, uh, grade average to predict. Uh, to be uh, eligible to play as a freshman in college. So to spend a little bit of time with your guidance counselor uh, in high school, make sure you have the right courses, enough of the core courses, uh, so that you can predict eligibility in college so that you're able to play as a freshman. And, of course, um, many of the coaches, in you know, the, for example, in soccer, which is pr- pr- primarily a fall sport with uh, – a few play days in the spring uh, in college. And uh, during the spring, many coaches encourage their athletes, both the men and the women, to be involved in community service, hospital visits, coaching youth clubs, um, and get, you know, getting involved in the community as much as they possibly can. Yeah, I, I love well, I have a fascination for coaching and student athletes. I think you you know that. <laughs> I just I, I can't interview enough student athletes or coaches because they just operate at such a cool high level um, that just fascinates me. And I think it I think it imparts such knowledge to other people to help people be their best. Even you know even if you're even if the person listening isn't a student athlete, there's still something to take from that. And, and where I'm going with that is goal setting. And I don't mean soccer goal setting. I mean, goal setting to like setting goals in life and so forth. And I'm wondering if you could, every time I have a, a coach or an athlete on, I ask them if how they set goals. Um, and I'm wondering if you would share that with us, how you've set goals in your life. Well, uh, you know, I guess that has to do with motivation um, mm-hmm. and, and motivation takes many, many um, different forms. It's, it's sometimes hard to uh, understand what motivates certain behavior. You can't excel in sports uh, unless you are motivated by um, the desire to excel. So, so I think that's a principal um, factor, that, you know, the, the so-called be the, best, be the best that you can be. Uh, comes from a a desire to excel, and that's what motivates many people to play sports and to be good at it. Uh, There are other motivating factors, however, uh, also such as the need to belong. Being a a member of a sports team puts you in a a clique of uh, friends and families uh, that's really a special experience. Um, That It's unfortunate that not everyone can play sports at a level of the say varsity team or even JV because they're there. You describe the attachment your, your son, for example, has to the university of new Haven. But if he wasn't a member of the baseball team, it would be a whole different experience. And for me, I would think it would be a less of an experience um, because you really feel this need 
that you belong to part of the school. You're part of the school. So it's, uh, it's one of the things that motivates uh, behavior. And, and then last, but maybe not last, but some people like to uh, take risks and, and overcome them. And, you know, playing whatever sport, um, there's, you know, there's a risk of, uh, yeah, okay, there's a risk of injury, but there's also the risk of fear of failure. So yeah. when you put yourself into certain situations where you're either going to succeed or, or you're not going to see, that's, that's a challenging um, uh, situation. And some people just get motivated by putting themselves into that um, into that situation. So, so those are some of the things that uh, have motivated me uh, in, in my career, and, and, I'm, and I'm sure that works, uh, motivates many of the athletes playing today. Great answer. I hope everybody listens to that on replay for a really long, many times. That was, that was awesome. Thank you for that. Um, I got to, we're good on time still. Um, okay. So now I'm going to show my lack of soccer um, knowledge a little bit. So please catch this <laughs> for me um, on your, on your resume. It talks about FIFA and it goes from like 200, 2016 to 2004 with all these different countries. Um, can you explain to me what that is? Teach well, me what that is. FIFA, yes, of course. FIFA is the world governing body. Uh, I knew that. They're headquartered, they're headquartered in Switzerland, and there's 212 or 213 members, countries that belong to FIFA. So it's, FIFA is the organization that runs the World Cup uh, for both men and women, for the Youth World Cups. Uh, they're in charge of the Olympic soccer tournament, etc. cetera. Uh, but for every soccer game, where there's one country playing against another, there's a so-called FIFA match commissioner that's in charge of the integrity of that match. And uh, in 2003, I went to a course uh, to become a match commissioner for FIFA. And as a result of that, um, I've traveled to pretty much every country in what's known as CONCACAF, which is the organization of uh, countries in North America, Central America, and the Caribbean. And so what you looked at was the various places uh, that I've traveled to uh, at the bequest of FIFA to, to uh, be the match commissioner for those games and, uh, and, and to, to ensure that wow. everything that goes to play those games is done the right way. It's a difficult assignment, actually, uh, you arrive two days before the game. Uh, you go to the hotel of each team. You check the passports of the players. You, you actually have a meeting where they come up to you. They show you the passport. You check the birth date. You check the expiration date. You check their face against the picture, making sure that uh, they are who they say they are. And then they sign uh, the form for the game. Um, and you also go to the field, make sure the field is um, in good shape, properly lined. You meet with the referees. You make sure they're sequestered in their hotel and that they're not approached by members of either of the teams. They're not given any gifts or anything like that because the referees come from uh, a neutral country. So if I have a game like, for example, Mexico against Canada, the referee could be from Jamaica uh, or a place <laughs> like that. So that's what I've done. I've done over 30 of those. And the, most, wow. the biggest, the biggest one I did was um, 
traveled to New Zealand, and it was Bahrain against New Zealand, and it was the last game of qualification for the World Cup. I forget what year, maybe three World Cups ago. And, and um, um, the game, that was a home-and-home. Home. The first game was in Bahrain, 0-0. So whoever won this game uh, was going to go to the World Cup, be one of the final 32 teams at that time. So it was a really very important game, and it was a you know, big assignment for me. That's so neat. Thank you for thank you for explaining that. Um, that's that's fascinating. Boy, you've been <laughs> you've been everywhere. That's so cool. Are there any countries that you just absolutely love? You're like, wow, I can't believe I got to go there, and that was such a great experience. Um, well, I've been to they, Italy, I've been to Italy um, three or four times. I was the assistant coach for the U.S. national team when we qualified for the World Cup in 1990, and that was played in Italy. Um, huh. we, we were we were headquartered um, in a small town outside of uh, Florence and and, uh, and Pisa, and we played uh, in Florence, but we also played in Rome. And I've uh, been back to Italy a couple of times um, as a visitor, and then on some other assignments. But this but this coming up uh, in June, I'll be going for the first time to Russia, and oh, cool. the World Cup is in. The World Cup is in Russia, and Fox TV has the uh, television rights for the game to be broadcast here back in the United States. So, And they built a studio in Red Square, and um, uh, I'll be leaving on June 7th, and I'll be there um, about five weeks. So uh, it's, a, it's a long tournament. It's going to be uh, uh, quite an experience. Uh, for for all of us wow. that are going, and especially for me, is it safe to say you're fearless? <laughs> Why? Because I'm going to Russia? <laughs> no, just because all of it. It's so cool. You, you've done so. There, I'd need to be on the phone with you for five more hours to cover everything you've done. I mean, it's well, just it's jaw dropping how how cool this I, all is. It's a I need I, a better word. I but. <laughs> I talked about uh, as a motivating factor seeking risk and overcoming it, and and I think uh, I, I think uh, you know that's probably the thing that motivates me the most. And you haven't even talked about my six-year career as a NASCAR stock car driver. I'm going there. Yeah, I saw that at the bottom. We're gonna we're we're going. You can talk about it now. I mean, because I was gonna go there. I was like, there's there's race car driving on here. <laughs> talk yeah. about that. Yeah. Yeah, when 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 we moved to Connecticut, there was a small track in uh, Waterford, and and uh, near New London, and you know it was I would go to races there because my father used to take me to races. Growing up in uh, in the New York area, there's actually uh, they had stock car racing in the polo grounds after the Giants left, and and uh, Freeport Stadium in Long Island or whatever. So I always had an interest in it. And then they one one time they announced they were going to start a grassroots, um, entry level, uh, economical uh, way to get involved in racing. So I said I could do that. And uh, the first time I, I bought a car, and the time I was in the car was actually in a race. And and uh, on the first turn I spun out and did a 360, uh, oh. and kept going because I didn't know uh, you know how hard you could hit the brake on the first turn. So you got to be, if you hit the brake, you're going to spin <laughs> out. So, 
so I did. And it took about three years to get competitive. Um, we had to, uh, there's a big learning curve. Uh, I was 46 years old when I started. Most of the kids I was driving against had been racing go-karts since they were six and seven, and they all had uh, uh, less fear than I had, uh, if you talk about fearless. And you needed to be relatively fearless to uh, to be competitive um, because if you didn't pass cars, um, you would if you didn't stay up front, uh, you'd be in the back. And if you're in the back, that means everything that happens in front of you, you wind up getting involved in. So you got to stay near the front. Um, one of the really cool things I, you know, I did. Um, they liked me very much there. I mean, because I was older and. And, you know, I really put a lot into it. So I won Sportsman of the Year um, in my third year, I think it was. And I became really competitive, always in the top 10 in points. And then we went to another track in Thompson, which is on the border of Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, right there where the three states come together. And it's a much bigger track. And, and one time that I was there, I did a – I should have sent you the video. I did a five-and-a-half-turn uh, roll, rollover. And, oh my uh, gosh! And after, yeah, and after and after that, my wife said, "I'm not going to any more races with you." Uh, <laughs> but bad. but then uh, but then uh, I I did manage to do another year and a half after I recovered from the injuries and stuff. Uh, you had to get back in the car. You just couldn't quit just because you had a you know a major mm-hmm. rollover. I mean, the whole car was damaged. So uh, I did another Lucky year you and were. a half. And, I'm sorry. So you're lucky you weren't, <laughs> or or were you? Yeah, with the cars, you can't believe. You know, the cars are very, very. They're built really. I mean, with the roll cages inside and all, um, you know, and then small tracks, you don't really get enough speed. You know, it's probably averaging 80, 90 miles an hour, but not like the almost 200 miles an hour on the big tracks. So, so it's it's a little bit different. I mean, it was. I was beaten up. About, I felt like I got hit by a truck, to tell you the truth. And I had the scrap marks from the from the harnesses, and I had a concussion. And uh, but uh, you know, I still love the sport. I go to a lot of races still, uh, but don't drive anymore. That's that's, a, that's fascinating. I uh, what? How did you get involved in that again? Like what? How did you? Yeah, tell me tell me one more time. I know well, you said I, I was at a race. I was yep. at a race, uh, and they announced over the loudspeaker that they were next the following season. The race I was at was on Labor Day, so it was the end of the season. The following season, we're going to start a new division, entry level, strictly stock. With you know them, that meant very little adjustments and modifications to the car. So, and I just uh, I bought a car, <laughs> and uh, and I. There you go. And I and I did it. That's what I did. And then you know, awesome. then the rules kept changing, and you you could soup up the car more, get a racing engine, and racing axles, and special tires, and all kinds of stuff. It took about three years before we learned the business. This is a combination of uh, you, you got to have a, a car, you got to have a crew, you got to have a driver, and you got to have a pocketbook. Because it's a very pocketbook, yeah, a keyword pocketbook. <laughs> yeah. like, it's like a very horse racing, right? Hobby. That's a very expensive hobby. Pocketbook, yeah. My, 
Oh, yeah. That's, yeah sports pockets. are like that sometimes. Deep pockets, yep. Um, okay. Talk about, let's talk about, let's see, I've got to check time one more time. But before we go, um, can you talk about um, Fox and um, you being with them? That's a great that's- story. And uh, this, it's another example, I think, of, you know, taking risks. Yeah. But uh, when I was when I was working for Major League Soccer, uh, I was in charge of the referee program and um, also on the disciplinary committee where we, you know, we would review incidents that happened in the game and maybe the referee missed something. And, you know, I mean, you're familiar with that, I'm sure, in the different sports. Every sport has a disciplinary committee of some sort. So uh, at the beginning of the season, uh, they would get all the media together and in one location, typically Florida or Las Vegas, and they would have two days of meetings. And the, and the uh, organizer of those meetings, his name was Michael Cohen, um, he would ask me to come in and speak about any rule changes or any uh, things, initiatives that we were looking at as a disciplinary committee, whatever. And, I, and you know, I would make it as exciting as possible with video and props and uh, he, he usually had me come on after lunch when everybody was falling asleep already, and I had to wake them up and so, and all and all of that. But when Fox um, started the network FS1 and FS2, their sport networks, they were gonna they knew they were gonna do a lot of soccer, and they wanted to have someone who um, could uh, not teach the laws of the game, but analyze, you know, what the referee is doing. Similar to Mike Pereira, for those of uh, your listeners listeners who uh, watch NFL, Fox was the one who started uh, having a, a referee expert come on to talk about mm-hmm. what happens on the field pertaining to the referee in the NFL. So I started it for soccer, and uh, my first assignment was for the Gold Cup, and and then uh, you know it was pretty much a test. I I even had to take a, a screen test. And um, I guess I did really well because this is like almost six years. And um, I've done the Women's World Cup. Uh, I've done the Confederations Cup and um, Copa America and Bundesliga. And I actually have a studio in my house now. So, for example, Saturday, 9.30, Fox will have a game from Germany. And the league is called Bundesliga. And... Uh, if something happens with the referee, uh, I'll be emailing them my uh, explanation of it. And if they want, I can go into the little room I have with a camera and lights and a backdrop and everything, and I'll explain it uh, on the air at halftime or or in a post-game show. So I never really know. I never really know when I'm going to be on. Um, So I have to watch the game in a shirt and tie, uh, makeup. (laughs) And uh, my pajama bottoms. <laughs> yes. Similar to how I, I think I sort of look right now. It's funny. Just hair on top of the head. And it's funny. Yeah. So it's not radio. It's TV, like a real, like a real TV studio going on. That's And that's, you can't make a mistake. Awesome. You can't, nope, you, you can't. can't make a mistake because you're talking about the laws of the game, the playing rules, and you got your book in front of you and you, you have to use the, the right words, the right terminology, you know, otherwise they're going to, catch you and on Twitter or or Facebook or whatever, they'll be writing all kinds of stuff that you don't know what you're talking about. So uh, a little bit of, a little bit of pressure there too. 
Yeah, but a little bit. Um, did you um, talk to about opportunity? If you, the word opportunity is coming to mind to me, because um, it seems like you don't. You say you when an opportunity comes your way. Do you always say yes? Sometimes do you say no. It's not right for me. Or, or are you? Uh, do you bless opportunities as they come your way? You should ask my wife, because she says I don't know the word no. <laughs> she, says, she says that's all I do is say yes. I mean, look, I mean, you, uh, we, we have never met, and uh, you asked me to come on your show, and uh, I, you know, without hesitation, I said I'd be happy to, because I don't know the, uh, I don't know the meaning of the word no. I don't know how to say no. So when opportunity presents itself, and you know, obviously people like talking about themselves, but you. If you've enabled me to talk a little bit about Fox, a little bit about number one soccer camps, a little bit about the University of New Haven. These are all things that have been good to me. So here's an opportunity for me, you know, to give mention to them and, you know, in a way say thank you. So um, yeah. and I don't say I don't I don't recall too many times saying no. Opportun- when well, opportunity presents itself, you've got to take advantage of it. Well, yeah, and I think that's just so important for anybody listening, um, because sometimes fear stops people from saying yes. There's just like a, you know, it might be an opportunity even. Like, have you ever had an opportunity that was bigger than you, and you had to had to learn it? You know, like you say yes, and then you're like, oh boy, why did I say yes to that? <laughs> you know, you're kind of like, have you ever had those moments? Well, I, I actually, even after all these years, I get pretty nervous. Um, you know, recently we mentioned the sport management department at New Haven. So uh, that professor, Alan Sack, he just retired one or two years ago, and they now, they now have a guest speaker uh, come in. And uh, so they asked me this past year, would I come in and speak for an hour and a half, um, uh, uh, you know, about my 60 years in soccer? I was so, you know, I, obviously I didn't say no. I said yes, right. but. I worked so I worked so hard in the preparation of that presentation. With um, I could send it to you actually the PowerPoint. I'd love to see it. But with, with yeah, with the with the videos and uh, I was so nervous about it. Um, but I think that's what keeps me going. Um, you get that adrenaline pumping, and mm-hmm. uh, it's better than sitting home and doing nothing. Exactly. Hey, um, can you t- one more thing, and then we'll we'll go to to make sure we respect time, of course. Here, um, you know, when you when you do say yes, and um, let's talk about a moment like, and it doesn't have to be your moment or anything like that, but just teach people like, let's say you do say yes to something like that, and it and it just does not go your way. Um, something happens; it didn't turn out the way you wanted. Sometimes people will fear saying yes again or give up, or you know, there's all sorts of reactions to that. Can you talk about that too? Well, there's there, when an opportunity presents itself, you, there's two things. There's actually three things that can happen. So one, you could be successful, have success. Two, you could fail. You can have a successful failure. And and I find nothing wrong with a successful failure because if you learn from it, you know that okay, you needed maybe you didn't prepare properly, or maybe you need to do it a different way. And you and it, even though you failed, you come out of it um, learning. Um, either more about the subject matter or more about yourself. So, so that's why, um, you know, you have to take advantage of opportunities because even a successful failure can work for you. 
we have a saying here at Best Ever You that we love it when people are lifelong learners. Do you believe in that? Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm learning every day. And, uh, and that's what, you know, they say that soccer is the world's most simple game, but it is so very, very complex uh, that, uh, and, and, and I don't know how many games I've watched both live and in television, but every time I watch a game, I learn something new. And or see really? something that I haven't seen that I haven't seen before. It's uh, oh, it's uh, it's unpredictable. Um, and that's what makes refereeing such a challenge uh, in it. And that's why um, Fox, for example, has hired uh, me or a person like me if I didn't get that opportunity uh, to explain uh, what's going on on the field. Because although it looks very simple, it's actually very complex. Yeah, I I love it when um, people come on as analysts or trainers or teachers or whatever you want to call call that role to sports, and you have somebody who really knows the game and is talking. Um, It makes it, especially if you don't know the sport well, but you're interested in it, um, it makes it so nice to to learn. Um, Can't say enough about that. So that's really cool that you do that. Um, And yeah, I, I, that's, yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> anyway, um, we have, boy, we have, yeah, we have two minutes left. Is there anything that I haven't asked you um, that that you want to talk about? Because I, I certainly have enjoyed um, getting. I, I know our audiences love this. I've gotten my phone's been ringing, <laughs> and people are texting me. I think we got all the questions in, everybody. Um, anything I haven't asked you? No, well, I think I think you've done a great job. I mean, you've You've allowed me to reflect on, on 60 years of soccer. Uh, we haven't talked much about the indoor game, but the indoor game doesn't exist uh, at a high level anymore in the United States. But for a while, there was no professional outdoor soccer, and I had the opportunity to work as referee-in-chief and uh, vice president of operations for what was called the Major Indoor Soccer League. And I met there um, one of my other mentors, Earl Foreman, who uh, recently passed away, he was the commissioner, and he owned the Virginia Squires of the ABA, uh, and uh, they had a reunion recently, and I did go to that reunion and met Dr. J, Julius Irving. I think I sent you a picture. Picture, uh, one yeah. One of the pictures, <laughs> yeah. So, so that, that was a, a, a special moment for me, and, and I think the only other thing that I'd like to say is uh, back in 1970, when the U.S. soccer started their first coaching schools, um, you know, and I was one of 16 coaches to attend that first week, uh, and it became a big thing where now, you know, you have to have a license to code, like an A license, a B license, national staff mm-hmm. license. That's how it works in the rest of the world. And I and um, my mentor after that period of time, Walter Chiswitz, who became the national coach, he gave me so many opportunities that if I had to, uh, close my comments with you uh, and say that, you know, he's a person that shouldn't be forgotten in the development of soccer in the United States. Um, so I'm happy to be able to mention his name and say thank you on the air. That's awesome. Yes, thank you. I Thank you so much for, for being with us. This is so, what a treat. Um, like I said from the get-go, um, so much information and so much more than soccer too. Um, so a lot about goals and motivation and all that good stuff. So um really want to thank you for being here. Um, uh, do you have a, do you want people to, um, 
What's your Twitter account again? Because that's fun to follow you on Twitter. I believe I believe it's at Dr. Dr. Joe Macknick. Perfect. All right, awesome. Well, you can get a hold of him on Twitter. You're on Facebook, um, and then I will post links to everything. And if we if we have videos from you that come our way, I'll post those too on BestEverYou.com. And um, we just want to say thank you also to your family. Um, it's awesome. You have a wife and two daughters and grandkids and all this awesome stuff. So we didn't get a chance to talk about them much. But um, do any of them play soccer? <laughs> Actually, no. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, okay. actually, no. They've been they've been involved in just about everything else, but uh, of but, course, uh, right? <laughs> yeah, that's funny. That's how that goes. I know. I hear you. But I appreciate, right. I appreciate your mentioning them and and for recognizing my failure not to mention them. But thank you again. Oh no, no, you did. You mentioned them, um, and I just uh, wanted to make sure to include them because they've got to be a huge, huge part of everything, and it's kind of fun to hear that they don't play soccer. <laughs> of course not, right? Um, oh, right. Anyway, all right. Thank you so much. And um, everybody right. listening. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Everybody listening, thank you so much for listening as well to the Best Ever You show. Um, we appreciate you being here with us live and in free replay. You can listen to the show all the time. You can replay it as much as you want. You can share it. Um, and we'll post a link also on besteveryou.com to go with it. And we have Appreciate um, Dr. Joe Macknick being with us and learning all about soccer and his life and the sport and um, some of the things that motivate and drive him and his goal setting and his affiliation with New Haven. Go New Haven, go Chargers, get charged up. <laughs> and um, I just want to say thanks to everybody again and have a great day. And um, we will try to think when we have another show. We have an, oh yeah, we have a show on Monday, everybody. Um, on Monday, I don't do shows normally on Monday, but we're working around a coach's baseball schedule. I have the head coach, um, Coach Pine, of Clark University's baseball program coming on Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern. Um, so really excited about that. Coach Pine is, uh, he's just a wealth of information as well. So um, hope you'll join me then. You can call in at 646-787-8537 um, to listen to that show as well or click on the link. And then on Thursday, April 5th, we have Lauren Galley back with us. Now we've followed Lauren since she was a teenager and um, she is the founder, since she was a teenager, of Girls Above Society and very into anti-bullying and inclusion and all that good stuff. So um, she's in college now getting a master's degree, if you can believe that. So we're, uh, we're welcoming her back live. And that's going to be a 7 p.m. show. We're working around her college schedule. So hope you'll join us. Um, take care, everybody, again. And thank you again um, to Dr. Joe in the house for being with us. Take care, everybody. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Best Ever You Show. Want more? Visit us at besteveryou.com. Be your best and keep it real. Confident, successful, caring, and beautiful every day with Best Ever You. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.